Well, friends, the text that we're going to consider this morning is uh, in Mark chapter 3. For those of you who are visiting here this morning, uh, we are making steady progress through the gospel of Mark. And, uh, and we come to the end of Mark chapter 3 this morning, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out loud, and I would ask you to please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Mark 3, starting with verse 31. And his, that is the Lord Jesus, his mother and brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, before we we dive into the text here, I want to share something with you on a personal note. Um... One of, the, uh, one of the worst fears and moments of terror that uh, a, a preacher can have is realizing late in the process of preparation that what you have been preparing to say is not actually what you should say. And uh, that's happened to me several times over the years, preaching at All Nations Church and preaching here. And this last week, late in my preparation, it dawned on me that the main point of what I was going to talk to you about most this morning related to this text is not actually the main point of the text at all, but it was something else that I really wanted to talk to you about, and I had been reading it in and preparing to, uh, to give you my opinion about something, a hobby horse that I've been wanting to bring before you, and I, that dawned on me, and uh, kind of late in the game, I had to go back to the drawing board. And prayerfully consider, what is it that this text is saying? And what is it saying to the people at Grace Church? Now, I share that with you uh, for two reasons. One, so that you would remember, friends, that, uh, that I am standing here on this slightly elevated platform behind this very attractive pulpit, not as a sermon machine, uh, but as a very human man who is struggling with the text week after week. And I covet your prayers in that regard. I do not have some uh, well-oiled sermon-producing mechanisms in my head that just uh, produce uh, something to share with you Sunday after Sunday. It really is a struggle, and I really am fallible. And please remember that and pray for me. Uh, Also, I share that with you because I want to remind you of what it is that we are really here for on Sunday mornings when we gather together. We're here, to the, we're here to hear the Word of God. We're not here to have a religious experience necessarily. We're not here to hear the opinions of somebody. We're not here to do our religious due diligence. We're here to hear from our God. 
This is not a pep talk that you are receiving when I preach. It's not a self-help seminar. It is the Word of God that we're giving our attention to. And it's important that I remember that, and it's important that you remember that. I'm going to make observations about this text. I'm going to make connections. I'm going to draw conclusions and make applications. Am I right in the connections that I make and the observations that I draw? Well, you need to think about that. You need to consider that. Because the point here is not that you walk away from the service and think, oh my, what a sermon. The point is that you walk away and think, oh my, what a text. What a God who has spoken these words. What truth he has given us. Not, oh, how finely crafted was that message or the illustrations were so gripping. But, oh, what an amazing truth God has revealed to us. And friends, I'll be honest with you, that takes a little bit of effort on your part. I remind you of that for that reason. That you, we're doing something together here, as I've said many times over the years to you. It's not, you're not here like in the movie theater watching something on a screen. And a, a, a religious, a spiritual version of a TED Talk is going to wash over you and you're maybe going to feel something, you're maybe not. It's not that. We're doing a work together. You don't just sit there passively and let it wash over you. You strive to hear the word of God and receive it as what it really is, the very word of God. Now, I've been thinking about that and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to say it to you, to remind you. This is more than a preaching station here. This is a family. And it's, it's good for us to be able to talk that way. To this text specifically, though, I draw your attention now. One of the themes that you see throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation all over the place is that the living God speaks, and when he speaks, everything changes. From the very beginning when there is nothing and the Lord God speaks and there is something. And then it is in chaos and he speaks and it is in order. To when he speaks to Abraham and there suddenly is a man on the earth who is a friend of God. When he speaks to, to Moses and suddenly his people have a deliverer and are brought out of the land of Egypt. All the way to that final day when he is going to speak and the whole world as we know it and the age that we are living in is going to is going to suddenly come to a halt. And time that has progressed moment after moment for all of creation history is going to stop. And everything will change yet again when the living God speaks. Now I remind you of that because I think throughout the Gospels we see echoes of that reality when the Lord Jesus says something and everything stops, and everyone is shocked by what he says, and everything that we think we knew about God changes because of what he said. It is in some ways an echo of the fact that he really is the living God, the God who speaks and everything changes. That's who's in the text here. Our Lord Jesus, again and again in the Gospels, he says something simple and yet profound, and, and when he says it, it turns everything upside down. And the text that we're looking at this morning is one of those texts. In verse 31, 
the narrative picks up right where the previous passage left off that we looked at last week. And whether there's been some change in the time or location is not relevant, it's not mentioned. Jesus is again ministering to people and he's surrounded by this crowd and we read that as he's teaching these folks seated around him, his mother and his brothers arrive. Mark tells us that they are standing outside. Now, what does he mean by that exactly? Jesus may be indoors and they're standing outside the building, or he might be teaching outside already, and Mark just means that his family is on the outskirts of this crowd, outside the circle of those seated around him. Either way, when Mary and our Lord's brothers arrive, they find that there are a great many people between them and Jesus, and they can't get to him. They're on the outside. And so, Mark tells us, they sent to him and called him. Now, probably they passed a message up through the crowd, probably person to person, until those closest to Jesus heard it and reported it to him. Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. Now, surely their expectation, his mother and brothers, was that Jesus would then, hearing that they were there, he would stop what he was doing and he would go to them probably that he'd welcome them, that he would attend to them. And based on what we saw back in verse 21 of this same chapter and talked about last week, their their ultimate goal, we know, was to have him leave behind this, from their perspective, increasingly bizarre ministry he'd been involved in and go back with them to Nazareth, back home where it was safe. Verse 21 of chapter 3 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, it's a very reasonable expectation, really, that they would think that Jesus would stop what he was doing and go to welcome them. I don't think his family is being arrogant and calling him this way, even though he was in the middle of teaching these crowds when they arrived. You've got to remember, Jesus was always engaged in teaching the crowds. He was doing this continually, so much so that right in this previous passage, we were told he doesn't even have time to eat. So it's not like they're interrupting him during the middle of his like one sermon Sunday morning. Even even by the standards of our day, family members reasonably expect to be welcomed and attended to when they arrive from out of town. And friends, remember that our modern Western standards for family obligation are far, far below the expectations of the ancient Near Eastern society where this took place. And maybe his family's being a little presumptuous to call him this way but it's not like they're being rude. And yet, our Lord responds to them in a way that would have been very surprising, both to them and to the masses of people gathered around. Surprising even by today's standards. Instead of turning his attention away from the crowd and giving preference to his mother and his brothers, he poses this question to the crowds there around him. Well, who are my mother and my brothers? Yikes. Now, he's not really asking them, of course. It's not like he's got amnesia suddenly. He's not scoffing at his family either or insulting them. Rather, the Lord Jesus is taking the arrival of his family as an opportunity to teach a lesson to his disciples about the nature of the kingdom of God. And that lesson is this in verse 35. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, 
the new spiritual kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ is establishing is very much a sort of family. And all who are part of that kingdom are the family of God himself, his own brothers and sisters and mothers. Now I have three lessons that I think we can learn from this text, three things I want to point out to you, three principles that are instructive for us. The first one is that nobody gets special access to God through human association. God is no respecter of persons in that way. The Lord Jesus' family expected, understandably, to have special access to them. They're thinking of him just as a human man at this point. And according to cultural norms, they should. Right? Much in this society was driven by who you know and who you're related to. And for them to show up on the scene of this suddenly very popular, wildly popular preacher and religious leader and be his immediate family, well, they should expect VIP access. The problem is, of course, they're not just dealing with a religious leader and a popular preacher. They are, at this point, dealing with God himself. It hasn't really dawned on them fully yet at this point, but Jesus is increasingly, as his earthly ministry progresses, making it clear that he is no mere man, but he is the living God. Now, the world that we live in today works very much in the same way in terms of human access and privilege. You know, much advantage is granted through association in our society. Who's going to get that job? Maybe the most qualified applicant. Maybe the guy who knows the person who's interviewing, right? Who's going to get into the school? Maybe the person who has the best credentials and the best test scores. Maybe the person who knows somebody who's on the admissions team? Who's going to get the, the loan at the bank? Who's going to have mercy from the police officer who pulls them over? Who is going to, to have a favorable judgment in court? Well, maybe the person who went to school with the judge, right? That's just the reality of the society that we are living in. The, the outcome is very much affected by who you are and who you know. It's very important, friends, that we recognize and that we remember that it is not that way in the kingdom of God. There is no privileged class of human beings living on the earth that have special preference to God. There is no insider track when it comes to fellowship with him. This is exactly what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying in Romans chapter 2. And he says it very, very plainly and efficiently in verse 11 of Romans chapter 2, for God shows no partiality. The King James Version that probably many of you memorized at some point says, there is no respect of persons with God. When it comes to our standing before him, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're smart, if you're not, it doesn't matter who you know or where you were raised or who you're affiliated with. 
Now, this was an important principle. It was an issue for the Pharisees. You remember, if you read the Gospels, they were continually assuming a sort of privilege because of the group they were associated with, because of their place in society, because of their status as Pharisees, as scribes, as Jews. But you remember, friends, the way that John the Baptist addressed them in the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, he says, And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right. Don't assume that just because who your parents are and who your granddaddy was and where you were raised, that God has a special place for you. We do this as a society sometimes. I maybe have told you this story before. I had a conversation with some of my extended family a few years ago. I was sitting in the, my mother's living room at the time, and I was talking about uh, the fact that uh, somebody had recently been baptized in our church. And these, these folks had grown up in a, a, a nominal sort of Christianity where everybody was, uh, where baptism was just a, a symbol uh, that didn't really mean anything, that everybody's children, as soon as they were born, this was just a thing that was done by everyone. It wasn't meaningful the way that biblical baptism is, paedo-baptism or credo-baptism. But as I was talking about this baptism with this, this man, an extended family member of mine, he said, uh, well, why did you baptize him? Well, I said, well, he became a Christian. He was converted. And this extended family member of mine, he, he kind of chuckled and he said, became a Christian? What was he before? You get the implication, right? He's like, we're, we're Americans, right? We're North Americans living in the Bible Belt. What, what do you mean he became a Christian? Isn't that just the default setting for people who were born in our time and place? Isn't that just what everybody is? Isn't this Christendom in that way? Right? That's the assumption in society. And friends, it can be an assumption that we make. We're in danger of making a similar assumption even within the church that we begin to think of ourselves as being in a place of privileged access to God, in a place of special favor with him simply because we are part of a privileged group, because we're church people, and that we're here with all the other church people that we're Bible-believing, moral, family-oriented people, and that's the kind of people that God likes. And we're part of that people, and so we're good. That assumption can creep in when we start thinking that way. That's a mistake. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter what group you affiliate yourself with or where you happen to be sitting on Sunday morning or how long you've been sitting there. It doesn't matter who your parents are or where you grew up or where you went to school or who you know or what kind of religious pedigree you might have, what church you belong to or your grandparents belong to. Human beings have regard for things like that, but God doesn't. Again, there's no privileged people. There's no insider track with him when it comes to his kingdom. Everyone is on equal footing before God, our creator, and all of us need to humble ourselves before him and become low and repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. 
That is the way to reconciliation with God, and it is the only way. And each of us must turn from our sins to Christ individually. Whether you are a fifth-generation preacher's kid who is here every time the church is open, or whether you are the most God-hating pagan in the valley, the son of many generations of God-hating pagans, who's never darkened a door of the church before today, it does not matter. Nobody has special access, but everybody has free access in Christ. Now, I want to apply this point very specifically to a very specific subset of our congregation here, and that is to the children being raised in this church. I want to speak very very pointedly and directly to those of you young people who are being raised in this church. Your parents are members here, regular attenders here. And you're here this Sunday morning and you're here many Sunday mornings listening to me preach sermons like this. Listen to me. Don't assume that everything is good between you and God because you're here. Just because your parents are members here and you attend Sunday school and you know some things about the Bible and you come in here and you sing and you sit through church services, those things don't impress God and they don't reconcile anyone to him. Only true repentance and faith reconciles anyone to God. And that is individual. That is not something that happens corporately. Your parents can't do it for you. That really matters. Listen, when I was your age, young people, and everybody who's under 37 years old, I was your age at some point. Especially young people, though, you know, 16 and under. When I was your age, I knew nothing of the Bible. I was very much in the world, loving the world, and I had no connection to the church. But then I heard the gospel, and by the grace of God, I believed it, and I was saved. I was converted. I became a Christian. I came into the church a believer, a disciple, and here I am today still in the church. But listen, friends. There were a lot of people my age when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, when I was out in the world, there were a lot of people who were in the church, who were listening to the Bible being taught, who were singing the songs, who were going to Sunday school, and are not in the church today, who as the years have gone by, they have drifted away and fallen in love with the world and they have no interest in Christ. What what I want to tell you, young people in our congregation, do not toy with the world. Do not play around with sin and think that you're safe because you go to church or because of who your parents are or because you can say some catechism questions. I worry about the young people in this church. I think about you a lot. I pray for you. I see you. I hear you. You maybe don't think people hear what you're saying when you're out on the, on the blacktop out here and you're out on the playground, when you're in the fellowship hall or the courtyard. I, people hear what you're saying. 
I worry about you. I worry about the things that you are willingly putting in your ears and the things you are willingly putting before your eyes. I worry about the language that you are using and the lies that you are telling and the way that you are responding to your parents and other people's parents. I'm worried about the way you seem to love the world and love sin and yet act like everything is just fine. And maybe you think it is fine because you're here, because you're at church after all. You're in a Christian family. Well, let me just remind you And let the text here remind you, in the end, that means nothing. Plenty of church-attending boys and girls who grew up in Christian families are in hell today because in the end, they loved the world and they loved their sin and they did not love the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7 tells us that many are surprised on the final day when they hear Jesus say, I didn't know you at all, regardless of the works that you did. Young people, don't trust in the church. Don't trust in who your parents are or how involved they are or how you're being raised or what passages you can recite. Those things do not save your soul. What matters is do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you yourself done business with him? Have you turned from your sin and clinging to him in faith as if your very life depends upon it, because it does depend upon it. You're not going to stand before him on the final day with your family at your side to answer for you. You're not going to stand there with the elders of the church or the rest of the congregation. You will stand with the Lord. And listen, I gave a pointed application to young people there. But adults in this congregation, don't you toy with sin either and think that everything's just fine because you're an upstanding member of the church on Sunday. Cling to Christ and turn away from all of that. And parents, I'll continue here for a moment. Parents, don't assume that everything is right between your children and the Lord just because they're here just because they attend services. Oh, pray for your children's souls. Pray that they would be saved. Teach your children the gospel and call them to believe it themselves. Listen, parents, can you remember the last time you explained to one of your children the the bare facts of the gospel and, and called them to believe it? Call them to believe it not just to do as they're told and be good boys and girls. Call them to cling to Christ. Make sure there are times when you read the Bible to them and explain it to them that they must repent and trust in Christ to be saved. Everybody must. Let them hear you pray for their souls. And I'll put it, I can't put a more fine point on it than this, but let me remind you, parents, It is not good little boys and girls who go to heaven. It is repentant sinners who trust in Christ who go to heaven. That's the fact. Let's remember that and treat our children, respond to our children, conduct ourselves in such a way as if we believe it. There is no special access 
to God in heaven because of who you know or how you were raised. And that's the first point I, I wanted to make, and I've made it for a very long time. And I'm going to make another point very, very rapidly. The second point I want to make, not only is it not who you are and what you know that matters, it is responding to the revealed will of God that does matter. Look at verse 35 in Mark chapter 3. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Our Lord says the one who does the will of God is his brother and sister and mother. Now, does he mean by that that we earn our place in his family by our obedience to the Ten Commandments? No. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through our obedience Think of passages like Luke chapter 18 where the Pharisee says, ah, I've done this and I've done this and I've obeyed these commands. And I'm not like that fella. But the tax collector says, oh, God, have mercy on me. And the scriptures clearly say, the Lord says, he goes home justified. But all that the Lord has, of all that the Lord has revealed to us about his will, I want to remind you, friends, it is, it is clear that a central desire in the heart of God, central in his heart and central in his commands, is that call for each of us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. That the gospel is, in a sense, his foremost command in that way. That we are to repent of our sin and trust in Christ for our salvation. In a very real sense, you look at that passage in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee was not obeying the command to repent and believe the gospel. And the tax collector was. This is the will of God. And there is a very real sense in which we must obey him if we are to be saved. I'm not making this up. Some of you know 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verse 8 refers to the Lord Jesus when he was revealed from heaven with his angels in mighty fire, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and the Holy Spirit refer to faith in the gospel and trust in Christ as obedience to the gospel because it is the will of God that you repent and believe. He's called all of us to it. He's not just offered it, he's commanded it. Now listen, we, as a church, I myself, and according to our doctrinal statement, we believe firmly in the doctrine of election, that God himself does the saving. That is a complicated idea. And how God's sovereignty and human free will and agency work together is complicated. But we believe this because the Bible is clear about it, that the Lord himself purposes those whom he will save. But listen, friends, I need to remind you, the Lord's purpose in revealing this doctrine of election to us in his scriptures is not so that we would get hung up on it and spend our lives worrying about whether or not we are the elect or that we would throw up our hands and say, well, if he's the one doing the choosing, it doesn't matter what I do, so I'll do nothing. And in effect, use that doctrine as an excuse to ignore his clear calls to repent and believe. That is not what the doctrine of election is about. And rightly understood, the biblical doctrine of election, it does not in any way undermine 
the call for each of us to respond to the gospel, for each of us to repent and to believe, to turn from our sin to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Election is God's work, but our work, friends, is to hear the gospel call and obey. When the gospel call is stated in the scriptures, when the apostles preach the gospel, they often put it in if-then terms. If you believe, then you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, don't be so overheated in your Calvinism that you can't preach like the apostles did. That you're worried about saying, if you believe, you will be saved. If you repent, he will forgive you. The Apostle Paul is the one that wrote the book of Romans, wrote the book of Ephesians. If he talks that way, we should talk that way too. It's a fact, and it's a fact in this church. If you believe, you will be saved. Anyone who comes to him. What that means, friends, is that in the end, the world is going to be divided into two groups. The scriptures are clear about this. Those who are Christ's and those who are not. Matthew chapter 25 In in one sense, those two groups will be, from one perspective, those who were elected for undeserved mercy from before the foundations of the earth, and those who were not, those whose names were in the Lamb's book, and those who were not, according to Revelation. But in another sense, in a very real sense, those two groups of people will be those who obeyed the gospel and those who didn't. You and I, absolutely everyone, will be in one of those categories. Did you hear and obey, or did you not? Don't think that you're going to stand before God and say, well, I I didn't know if I was called. Or you didn't give me enough grace that my faith wasn't strong enough. Or I I thought that I probably wasn't the elect, and if I was, you were going to do something about it. Don't think that we're going to roll our guilt on God himself at the judgment. The question is when he said, turn from your sin and trust in Christ, did you say, yes, Lord, or did you say no? And saying nothing is no. Now, I I do have one point I want to make in closing. And I'd like to elaborate on this one, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to, but I I want to make sure that I mention it to you. The third point I want to make from this text is that God's love for his people is a deep and abiding love. We could talk at length about this, and maybe I'm I'm preaching on a Sunday night here coming up soon. Maybe maybe we'll come back to this point, Um, because this this is worth several sermons. When the Lord Jesus says, who are my brothers and my mother here, everyone who does the will of God is my mother and my brothers and my sister. He is not lowering his family or diminishing them. He is elevating all others to this place of beloved family with him. You can't read the Gospels and think that Jesus didn't love his mom. He's very clear several times. I mean, from the cross, he's arranging his mother's care, right? The fifth commandment applies to him. He honors his mother. He honors his family. He holds his family in high regard. When he equates all these people in the crowd around him who are believing to his family, he's not reducing everyone to the level of stranger. He's elevating all those who will believe to the place of his immediate family. 
his mother and his brothers and his sister, sisters. He, here is the heart of God. And I just want to point this out to you in passing. Here is the heart of God towards sinners when they repent and come to him in Christ. This is Isaiah 49. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord's forsaken me, the Lord's forgotten me. The response from heaven is, how can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The living God says of his own people, the affection that I have for you is stronger than that of a mother with her nursing child. The fellowship that I have with you, says the Lord God to repentant sinners who are trusting in Christ. This is a family connection. You're my brothers to me. You are my brothers, my sisters, my very mother. It is undeserving. It is overwhelming. But it is true, friends. If you trust in Christ, he looks on you this morning, well, now, this afternoon. And he says, here is my mother. Here is my brother. Here is my sister. No matter how weak and sputtering your faith might be this morning, if it is a sincere faith that is looking to him and him alone, Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, is pleased to say, this one is a brother to me, a sister to me, a, a mother to me. That's how dear they are to my heart. My, some of you, I'll close it this way. Some, some of you know that recently with my mother getting very sick and passing away, I was reconciled with my brother in a way that my, my biological brother that we had not been in many years. You know, for, for a decade, I saw him an hour a year at Christmas and we were not friends. Uh, we, were, we were estranged and we didn't talk at all except for that once a year. And, and he you know, he, he lives in California, and he's a musician, and everything about us does not match up in every way. Right? So we, we were at odds. Well, recently, when he was flying back into town to see my mother in her last days, I went to pick him up at the airport. And when, he, when I saw him coming down the, uh, the walkway, at the Roanoke Airport here, and I recognized him. I mean, it had been, been a long time since I'd seen him. I smiled, because he's my brother. We grew up together. A lot, a lot has happened since then, but he's still my little brother. And he's always going to be, right? And I love him. Even though we fought, even though we've been at odds, he's my brother. I was happy to see him. I hugged him. Thick and thin, he's going to be my brother. You realize that is the way the Lord Jesus looks at us. If you've been straying in your heart, you've grown cold lately, he isn't standing at the end of that walkway at the airport saying, oh, now you come into town, huh? 
Now, you know, yeah, the little red hen. Now, you know, yeah. that isn't the way the Lord Jesus, that isn't the way he sees us. If you've hated him your whole life and you come in genuine faith today, you don't find a cold shoulder from him. You find somebody who say, ah, now this one's my brother. This one's my sister. This one's my mother. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word that teaches us. We would not know what to think if it weren't for your word. Thanks for instructing us. And oh Lord, help us to see who you really are. Help us to look at the Lord Jesus. Help us to hear the words that he says. Help us to know him and in knowing him to know you, God, and have eternal life. Have mercy on your church, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.